Do you know how you would feel if you came face to face with God? In Genesis 28, after blessing Jacob, Isaac sends him away to his uncle Laban. And on his way there, Jacob has an experience, a vision in a dream of God that is so profound, he calls the place Bethel, the house of God. For the Lord is our defense, yea, he defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yea, he defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yea, he defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yea, he defend To what degree Rebecca really wants Jacob to be married at this stage of his life is unclear. But knowing Esau's intention, she realizes she needs an excuse to put distance between the two brothers. In the opening five verses, we learn that Isaac sees the wisdom in his wife's suggestion, and so the plan is to send Jacob away to his brother-in-law Laban. Now, in the meantime, God has worked in his heart because out of the gate we see him desiring to confer the blessing upon Jacob. Now, he's already blessed him, but what he is doing here is removing any shadow of doubt that Jacob was entitled to that blessing. Here's a man that has now realized his folly and has resigned himself to the will of God that it is God's plan that Jacob, the younger, should be blessed. Now, as you look at the blessing, you will see that Isaac uses the name that God revealed himself as to Abraham in Genesis 17, El Shaddai. And it's clear then that Isaac wants Jacob to grasp that this God is the God of his grandfather Abraham and all the stories and everything he knew about his grandfather. Isaac wants Jacob to know he will be just as faithful to him. So he uses El Shaddai. He also refers to the blessing of Abraham. In verses 6 through 9, Esau, either watching or learning of the reason for Jacob's departure, proves his shallow and carnal way of thinking. His policy was to try to please his father, but what is missing is any desire to please God. Furthermore, and it just struck me upon reading this again, that as Esau looks at Jacob and sees this kind of envy of where he's going to obtain a wife and so on, it seems like already you see the superiority of Jacob over Esau in that, and the fulfillment of the prophecy that he would be lord over his brethren is coming to pass. In verses 10 through 15, we see that just like our Lord Jesus, who was blessed at his baptism with the testimony of the Father being there before he was sent into the wilderness, Jacob too is blessed by his father, and then he's to be sent away all alone. The journey is some 500 miles, and unlike Abraham's servant who made the same journey, who was taking with him 10 camels and all sorts of goods, Jacob appears to be making it on his own. Now, when Jacob finally rests, he encounters God in a dream, in a vision that was unlike anything he had ever experienced. And what he sees is a ladder. And that ladder, we're told in John 1.51, that Christ really is that ladder. In other words, he is the mediator of the elect. He is the one who bridges the gap between heaven and earth. He is the one that allows those of us on earth to reach up to heaven. In fact, it's only by Christ that we can enjoy perpetual communion with God. We learn that the Lord appears to Jacob as well. And as always, I believe that this is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Son of God. And he comes and reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant to him. And what's distinct about the language this time is that it is exceedingly personal and he is being reassured of divine protection and provision. Now the question arises perhaps, was Jacob converted at this point? And 
It's hard to be dogmatic, but I, I think we could say it's likely that this twister is on a journey and God has visited him and he is going to have his ups and downs, but it will be by continual meetings with God that he will be kept on the straight and narrow. Now, as we look at verses 16 through 22, if this is Jacob's salvation, then we can see that salvation produces three things. First of all, in Jacob, there's an awareness of the presence of God. We also see that there is an expression of fear of God, and then there's also a knowledge of the salvation of God. Verses 16 and 17 show those three things, and they are true of anyone converted. Jacob then consecrates the place with oil and consecrates his life with a vow. And the language appears to some as if Jacob is bargaining with God, but that's not really what's going on. He's simply rehearsing back to God what God said he would do for him. And he's saying, well, if this is my, going to be my experience, then I will return and worship here and I will give a tithe of all that I have. This, of course, won't take place until Genesis 35 when God reminds him and he's found again at Bethel. And so we come to application one. Historic truths need to be revisited. Isaac, by using the name El Shaddai, helps Jacob to revisit the past. He causes him not only to remember what the name itself means, but the occasion in which it was given in Genesis 17. No one on earth should have more interest in history and in all theological works than the Christian. The Christian is strengthened by these things. And so it's important for us to know them, to read church history, and to read the old Puritan works and other older works whereby we learn the lessons of saints of a bygone era. Christian, acquaint yourself with them as well as the members of your family. Two, Satan always works to hinder the gospel. The only way Esau can see himself getting one over on Jacob at this stage is to kill him. And by thinking that way, he becomes like Cain who killed his brother Abel. Now, in doing so, he's doing something else, whether he's conscious of it or not, but he's attacking the very line through which the Messiah is to come. By doing that, he is attacking God's means of saving his people. And so really, as I say, it's an attack upon the gospel. Now, Christian, you have to take that to heart. Every sincere effort you give in order to reach souls with the gospel are going to be attacked by Satan. You should expect it. And may the Lord help us to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the fiery darts of the devil. Three, grace appears offensive to the self-righteous. Now, when you look at this scenario, not only is there a threat on God's plan externally from Esau, but internally in Jacob. I mean, Jacob is corrupt. <laughs> He's, I mean, we've seen more integrity from people like Abimelech who don't know God than we have found in someone like Jacob. So there's a threat here. And yet, and yet, as we see God blessing him, there's a part of us, the self-righteous part of us that says, this isn't fair. I mean, it's just not right. Why, why should Jacob be blessed? And yet all of that, as we cry for fairness, is a reflection of our misunderstanding of our need of grace. Christian, be very careful when you're crying out for the need for fairness upon others, when you know yourself what you need is grace. May we always be seeing that and elevating grace rather than inclining ourselves to our self-righteous desires for fairness upon others or even foolishly towards ourselves. Four, the blessing of God does not promise an easy life. Jacob, who is blessed once and then almost immediately again, 
is about to walk into a period of loneliness and uncertainty. Will the blessing of God mean that you're alone, homeless, and estranged from your brother or another family member? Possibly. That's what it meant for Jacob. But what we realize is what follows the mountaintop are the valleys, and yet it's in the shadows of the valley where we see the brightness of God's countenance in a way we cannot see it in the light of the mountaintop. 5. Honoring parents without love for God is vanity. Children, learn from Esau again. Here we see him desiring to please his father Isaac, and yet he is utterly blind to know how to do that in the right way. Boys and girls, this is a strong reminder to you that without a new heart, you cannot really know how to please God. And you parents, though you may have children that desire to be compliant, without the Spirit of God working in them, they just simply don't have the perception or the understanding, especially as they grow and the age and life becomes more complicated and difficult, they will simply not know how to do that, how to please you. They may have grown up and pleased you in many ways, but then they start to make decisions that lack insight and wisdom, the tough decisions of life, because they don't know God. So above every prayer, let us pray that God will give our children new hearts. 6. God's gracious visitations are unpredictable. Jacob went to sleep feeling alone and woke up being assured of the presence of God. And this is a wonderful thing. In fact, if you're feeling cold at heart, if you might have to raise your hand and say, I need revival, pray for this. Pray for a gracious visitation of God. Pray for a visitation you can't plan, that you can't guarantee. Plead, plead to God that he would come and revive you again. We all need our seasons of quickening. And finally, no man cometh unto the Father but by Christ, and no blessings come to us from the Father but by Christ. It is Christ the latter that makes the difference. And so let's praise him, praise him from the depth of our souls that we have access to God and the blessings of God flow to us through Christ. What a wonderful, privileged position this is for those of us who believe. 